0: And welcome back to What China Wants with me, Sam Olsen, and Stuart Patterson, as always. Now, many of you will have seen this last weekend lots of news buzz about apparent coups against Xi Jinping in China. And my phone was suddenly taking a lot of incoming messages and emails from people wondering whether this was happening or not. And I'm sure yours was too, Stuart. But it didn't take very long to dig into it to realise, there was hardly any proper news associated with these rumours. So for all intents and purposes, that's all they were, rumours. But it did start Stuart and I thinking, you know, to what degree is disinformation playing a big part of China's campaigns abroad, but also with China's relationship with its own people? Uh, And to that extent, we thought it would be very useful to bring in a definite friend of the show, Alex Neal, Obviously, he's been studying the use of information with regard to China for many, many years. And to ask him what he thinks about the latest news or rumours, I should say, about Xi Jinping's coup, but also the general attitude to information and disinformation from China. So without further ado, welcome, Alex.
1: Thanks very much, Sam. Great to be back. And uh, greetings, Stuart. Well,
2: thank you, Alex. Maybe we should just kick off with a black and white question, although nothing's ever quite black and white with regards to China. I mean, clearly, Alex, there has been no coup by any stretch of the definition. Is that correct?
1: I think that is. uh, it's a very safe bet to say there has been no coup.
2: And in fact, looking at some of the activity in China over the last few days, one could argue that if anything, Xi Jinping has been very active in solidifying his position. I'm referring here to a number of recent imprisonments that have taken place, which, you know, although the charges that have levied against these individuals are serious ones to do with corruption and other crimes of that nature, there is inevitably a suspicion that politics has played a part in them. So, for example, Sun Li who's a former Vice Minister of Public Security, has received a death sentence, which is likely to be commuted to life imprisonment without parole after two years. Fu Zhenghua, the former Justice Minister, has also been imprisoned on charges of accepting bribes. And Louis Jingyun, who's a former Vice Governor and Head of Public Security in Zhangxi province, was sentenced to 14 years. And also Gong Daoan, a former deputy mayor of Shanghai, has also received a life prison sentence for accepting bribes. So the anti-corruption campaign, if one wants to call it that, seems to be ongoing. And uh, Alex, I mean, in your view, is there anything that you're seeing coming out of China that suggests that Xi Jinping's situation is in any way precarious? Or should we read these events as being indications of the solidity of his uh, position?
1: No, I I don't think there's anything to indicate that Xi Jinping's situation has become precarious in any way. If anything, these are cases which um, will set an example on the run-up to the 20th Party Congress, a selection of corrupt characters who have been subjected to the same internal party process of investigation and who are now in public being vilified and and there will be a process of them. Well, first of all, they were stripped from their party positions and and now they've been sentenced. But I think this is a signal that um, with expectation that Xi Jinping will be moving into a, a third term, that seems to be the received wisdom the 20th Party Congress in a couple of weeks' time, that initiative of of continuing to target both the tigers and the flies as as part of his corruption campaign will be ongoing. But I, if you drill into it, I I wouldn't dismiss speculation that the sentencing of some of these individuals may be linked to last minute jockeying or horse trading or factional rivalries or betrayals. It could be that, but um, we we simply don't know. Uh, I think all we can say is that party resilience and the integrity of the party and C's determination to continue the anti-corruption campaign is ongoing. And um, it's sort of a demonstration of business as normal, if you like.
2: So, so Alex, I mean, one of the issues that this all raises is how can it be the case that in a country as large and as important as China these rumors which are you know disinformation effectively can spread so rapidly i mean why is there so much disinformation around china
1: well i think uh, we need to consider the the great firewall i mean we're all talking about disinformation promulgating and um propagating and accelerating around the world, around social media. But I think we need to consider that none of this really is probably surfacing inside China itself. This is something that's been flying around Western social media platforms uh, and around Western networks. But inside China, I think that the picture is likely to be very different. You know, the censorship system in China is basically operated by artificial intelligence now it's almost automated and of course there will be challenges or discussion about the outcomes of the 20th party congress but this will all be in in veiled language it will be in cryptic language designed to defeat the artificial intelligence and the automated censorship mechanisms that the great firewall operates or at least domestically within china But externally, what has been allowed to happen is the dissident movement, particularly the Falun Gong, has transmitted a stream of disinformation which has become a meme and has uh, accelerated around the globe and um, has created almost a hysteria, if you like, about rumours of a coup taking place and all kinds of outlandish ideas about what might have happened to Xi Jinping. The Falun Gong movement is ostensibly founded in some rather quirky Buddhist theory. I think in some interpretations it could be regarded as a a cult movement. But what is interesting is 20-odd years ago the Communist Party realized that the Falun Gong had infiltrated society, not just in a populist way, but it had also permeated the ranks of the Communist Party. And uh, eventually, there was a a sit-in protest around the Zhongnanhai compound of Falun Gong practitioners. This hugely unnerved the Chinese leadership at the time, and therein commenced a campaign of really quite vicious prosecution of this organization. I suppose the interesting thing about it is that um, it has endured. There are funders and outposts of the Falun Gong outside of China. The organization has endured and it's created media outlets such as the, the Epoch Times, for example. This disinformation campaign is one example of how they're trying to get back at the Chinese leadership I think it's been quite interesting, the ability to mount disinformation campaigns outside of China's borders, but internally, I don't think it's really had an impact.
0: So, Alex, it's a very interesting point you raised about Falun
1: Gong. And you and I were
0: speaking before this, and there is certainly a suggestion that people within Falun Gong, who are obviously notable domestic opponents of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, that this organisation has been instrumental as far as your research goes, in helping to promulgate the rumours of the coup. But one of the other things I think is important to discuss is the way that people that wanted to believe there was a coup were so readily involved in spreading that disinformation. For example, it's been suggested through some of the sources I've read online that a lot of the people pushing the coup headline were based in India. And of course, Indian nationalists have been having a bit of a uh, to-do with Chinese nationalists over the last few years, specifically around the border issues that led to the deaths of quite a few on both sides a few years ago. What's your view, Alex? I mean, is this something... The coup is it, is it part of a wider program of people uh, opposed to China trying to create disinformation around Chinese hierarchy, specifically around the stability of Xi Jinping? Or do you think this is a one off?
1: Well, I think you're right, Sam. I mean, it, it is um, a really important juncture in Chinese politics. Uh, this is a 10 a year cycle we're watching, and movements like the Falun Gong, they've got a huge amount of anxiety which stems from you know almost 20 years ago when the organization was persecuted by chinese authorities and that persecution has been relentless and after the Falun Gong became a proscribed organization in china they developed a very well constructed and well organized organization outside of china but you know, well-funded as well, including media organizations and key exiled figures. The Falun Gong movement clearly wants to exploit this time, this time of political change in China to highlight, well their own plight, but also some of the injustices and, well, you know, you, you could call it pretty draconian measures used against their organization over the last two decades.
2: Sam, I mean, we've talked a little bit there about, you know, disinformation about China. But I mean, China itself, obviously, has been at the forefront of a number of disinformation campaigns aimed at us, hasn't it, in the recent past?
1: Yeah.
2: Perhaps you'd just like to elaborate on some of those, because it seems to me that, you know, we are in this information war or disinformation war where narratives are being created with pernicious ends in sight, as it were.
0: Yeah, Stuart, you're completely right. Uh, and uh, although there will be people obviously that, that say that China really isn't doing much in the disinformation space, it's quite clear to most that there has been an awful lot of work done by the Chinese authorities specifically thinking around COVID. And if you remember, just shortly after the sort of COVID pandemic became a real thing in the West, there were already rumours coming out from China suggesting that it was US servicemen who had brought the virus wittingly or unwittingly from America to Wuhan as part of some exercise, whatever, uh, when it was quite clear that the origin was was far more likely to be in China. But it, what's interesting is that I don't know if you saw in the, in the Sunday Times a few days ago, Dominic Lawson, the columnist, was talking about an American professor called uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who has been quite instrumental in working out the origins of this COVID and. It's quite clear that he is someone that feels very strongly affiliated with the Communist Party, at least in terms of its messaging, because he's been quite clear in saying that the COVID virus originated in America and it is America's fault and America's trying to deflect the blame. And in fact, Jeffrey Sachs was part of, or in fact, I think chairman of a commission put together by the Lancet magazine, the preeminent medical magazine, looking at the COVID origin. And he's quoted saying the origin of the virus remains unknown. So that's better than saying it was specifically around America. But I think it's still quite disingenuous to say that we don't really know much about the origins of the virus when China is presumed by almost every single intelligence official that I've spoken to to be the origin. That doesn't mean that it was specifically released by China. Probably very doubtful. But it could have been quite easily an accident uh, or something like that. But. Nonetheless, the fact that China has done very well in convincing, as Dominic Lawson calls them, useful idiots uh, in the West to promulgate the China line on this has been quite a success for them. Alex, a lot of your career has been looking at the way that China uses information and uses its agents on the ground around the world to spread information. How successful do you think China has been in, in the COVID origin story in trying to get the world to believe its side rather than sort of admitting any mistake it's made?
1: Well, the Fort Dietrich disinformation campaign I think has largely been unsuccessful. I mean you'll have a whole range of agitators across the world who may have sympathies with China or may have antipathy towards, you know, some kind of Western conspiracy in, in the post Cold War world. But the notion that a virus was brought in from Fort Dietrich where allegedly virological experimentation was taking place. And I mean, it's become quite farcical, to be honest, but it's still there in Chinese propaganda. If you look at Chinese newspapers, there are cartoons depicting Fort Dietrich leaking out um, microbes and, and being carried over to the Wuhan Games, which happened, I think, in October prior to the Wuhan outbreak. I mean, clearly that storyline came out of China's propaganda machine in the wake of accusations of leaks from PLA laboratory in Wuhan, or at least a military-backed biological warfare center. You know, there's some pretty blunt and shoddy propaganda machinery operating. But yes, there are individuals and societies around the world that are prepared to swallow that. What we really need is empirical data. And um, as we've seen from the UN delegation that visited Wuhan and described obfuscation and concealment and all of the frustrations around that, I think we need to wait for empirical data about the provenance of the virus.
0: Do you think that's likely? I don't think anyone in the West is holding their breath of
1: empirical evidence coming out of China. No, no, it, it's, it's not going to happen, I think. But to answer your original question about China's disinformation campaigns, China has become quite adroit at using social media platforms within the Chinese language speaking community around the world. Some of this is funded by the United Front Work Department and its fronts around the world. That has gained traction. I mean, in parts of Southeast Asia and other areas where overseas Chinese communities or ethnic Chinese communities are concentrated, uh, you will find more traction with the Chinese narrative. I think that's where disinformation and the question of the use of influence and whether or not that develops onto interference, that's a really important question. So things like COVID diplomacy, agitation, propaganda, which the Chinese Communist Party is, is able to do, they all come into play.
0: So you might have seen that the Centre for European Policy Analysis did that report, I think, last year talking about how Russia and China have started to combine their disinformation or information campaigns from their point of view around the world. And so going back to what Alex was saying, uh, you know, looking at specific communities, it's not just the Chinese community around the world, though it's sort of anyone that can sort of be used to stir up issues within Western societies are being reached. But this is notable that since that report was published in December, obviously, we've had the war in Ukraine. And in the recent months, you've seen Chinese officials and a lot on Chinese social media amplifying Russian claims about, for example, US bioweapons being in Ukraine and and many of the denials made by Russia about any war crimes, etc. So I suppose the question is, to what degree are Russia and China now in an information tandem or an information partnership? Is it Russia and
1: China versus the West online as well now? I think, I think um, yeah, what we've seen in the, in the recent Shanghai Cooperation Organization meetings and um, engagement between Russia and China, Li Shu, the um, number three on the standing committee, the current standing committee, he expressed synergy, if you like, on the position of Ukraine and Russia. He, he basically said that China was with Russia on this, the narrative coming from china is very much that nato particularly america fomented the conditions for the outbreak of war in ukraine and the narrative is is that russia has been targeted by the united states and nato through the vector of ukraine and that china is next that is definitely a narrative which is being propagated Within the Chinese leadership, and we, and we heard that from Li Jianshu. But if you read it in in journals or in People's Daily, the narrative is very much that the war in Ukraine is viewed as a proxy war for the West in its rivalry with Russia to take Russia down, and that China could be next. And the the link between U.S. and allied activities in the Indo-Pacific is similar to what's going on in Ukraine.
2: Alex, can, can you perhaps just give our audience some sort of indication as to how the domestic Chinese population living behind the Great Firewall access alternative viewpoints? To what extent is that actually possible? And is there any way to judge the extent to which the official party line is actually swallowed and believed by the public at large in China?
1: I think um, the educated classes in China, the elites, they'll all have access to VPN technologies one way or another. VPN technologies, of course, they're illegal, so there's the risk of being detected and facing prosecution by the Chinese authorities. But I I think it's fair to say that Chinese middle-class society and the elites as well, if they want to get an alternative view or they want to understand Western perspectives, they can do that. The other question I I would raise is, there's a very significant expat population, if you want to call that, economic migrants Wealthy Chinese, middle class Chinese around the world who are residing in places where there is free media and they will be watching Western news feeds and looking at Western social media and seeing the realities of what's going on. And I don't think we can dismiss that. You know, privately, I think Chinese society and its interaction within China and and without is a really important factor. So I don't think we can say there's this sort of bifurcated world where China behind the Great Firewall is a sort of naive, isolated society and China without it is somehow exposed to this broader narrative. I think it's more complicated than that. But also playing into this, is um, simple Chinese nationalism and pride in China and anxiety about pressures that that the West is exerting on China. And, of course, things like Taiwan come into play as well on, on that front. So just bringing
0: us back to where we were at the beginning of the podcast, In terms of the party congress, there's no way, no cat in hell's chance that China's going to relax any of its information control internally over the next few weeks as party congress ramps up, right? But what what sort of information controlled communication messaging do you think we're going to see ahead of the party congress around the world, Alex?
1: Well, I I think um, Chinese embassies and missions and organisations around the world Will have certainly been unnerved by what appears to be a Falun Gong initiated disinformation campaign, which has um, propagated and, and become a meme. Uh, and they will be concerned about that. And they will have been alerted by central authorities to be aware of other possible disinformation campaigns which may accelerate on the approach to October 16th. But We're going to see an ever more um, tightening grip on information flows within China and the state media outside of China. Uh, And also, I think certainly the Chinese community abroad uh, will be under more scrutiny from Chinese embassies abroad to make sure that they fall in line with their patriotic duties, but also the, the wishes of the party over the next couple of weeks.
2: Alex, thank you very much indeed for your insights into the information war that is obviously an ongoing part of great power rivalry. And we look forward to interviewing you again shortly, particularly, I think probably, Sam, the best time for that would be after the Congress in mid-October. I hope you're going to be taking lots of notes, Alex.
1: <laughs> yeah, I will be. I will be watching it intently. But thank you very much to you both for, for hosting me again. Yeah, and I think uh, a sort of wash-up session within a few weeks after the Party Congress would be fascinating to discuss, and I look forward to to speaking to your audience again.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Alex. Uh, And we'll be back next week with more What China 1. Goodbye.